Sasha Garcia, a recent graduate of Emmett J. Conrad High School in the Vickery Meadow neighborhood of Dallas, Texas. We're about to hear more from her and current Conrad student and former Iranian refugee Ruha Hagar in just a moment. I'm your host, Tiffany Jelke, and this is In Their Own Voices, where we learn about refugees and put their stories in the heart of the data. Zasha was a member of the award-winning Conrad Charging Choir at the school which hosts more refugee and immigrant students than any other in the area and boasts a 90% minority enrollment with students from all across the globe attending and over 30 languages can be heard in the hallways. According to an article by Diane Solis of the Dallas Morning News, the multicultural chorus includes rich tenors and basses from Burma, Mexico, and Congo and sopranos and altos from Nepal, Honduras, Somalia, and even Italy. I spoke with Sasha and Ruha to learn about this multicultural celebration, really, at Conrad. Conrad has always been special because it is very diverse. Because again, as a refugee, I was only here for two and a half years. When I started Conrad, when I started my ninth grade year, I didn't feel left out. I didn't feel like I wasn't the only one who maybe was still struggling with English. There were people who looked like me. There were teachers who, you know, understood my background. So overall, it was a much better experience than like some of my friends who were, you know, in a neighborhood and in a school where, you know, maybe she was the only refugee there. But yeah, I do see a lot of celebration of diversity at Conrad too. We have multicultural club and we have the multicultural concerts, concerts yeah, every year. Yeah, so I do see it being celebrated at Conrad too. And I feel like they are very aware that, you know, Conrad is special because, for example, competitions and stuff, when they go to different schools, they see how different it is. The only thing I can really speak on is multicultural concert because I was in choir and we all got along. It was really fun. Like, okay, during multicultural week, everybody in choir, everybody brings a dish 
from their culture. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. It's, it's to say the least. It's just, you know, like a big like family reunion and we all have different backgrounds, which is pretty awesome. But like, at the concert too, like people do get to taste uh, food from different cultures. It's like it's open to whoever comes to the concert, which is pretty cool. Cause like I would have never tasted some of the food from you know different countries if it wasn't for that concert. Like there's different um, boards with the different flags and like the different food, little cups of food, cute. And we cook it. The choir students are in the back cafe cooking, <laughs> cooking it, yeah. cooking everybody. All these different. We're like we don't even know if this tastes right. <laughs> what is this? I told Sasha how I'd seen YouTube clips of the choir receiving nude dresses and tuxes, and she told me more about that day. When we received that, it was amazing. We were like kids on Christmas morning opening boxes like, wow, we got new dresses and we got new suits and ties and all kinds of stuff. And that was all like donation. Charlotte Test, she did that. She spent thousands of dollars donating to our choir. She's the one that got us to singing at Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church. She was the start of that too. That's how I'm going to school. They paid for it. Yeah, Preston Hollow Presbyterian oh, Church wow. because of Miss Test um, and Steve Jobman. Wow. That's the reason I'm. Oh, I go to barber school. I'm gonna be a barber, but they paid it full. Wow. Yeah. And Sasha would love to give back in her own way. We would endure so it was like a family. It is a family. Yeah. Like every Wednesday, I know they have choir rehearsal, and I every Wednesday I'm like, should I go? <laughs> and I never go, but. But well, maybe I would love I would love to assist assistant. yeah I yeah. would love to assist her in a choir room oh that would <laughs> that would be everything yeah. oh my that gosh her little dance moves because she would like do it right Tasha every time because I'll be like Miss I do not dance I <laughs> sing and she's like well we're performing aren't we <laughs> most of the time it was just her deciding on what song we would sing uh-huh. but because of all the cultures that were in the classroom uh-huh. we would sing in different languages that other students would understand so they would like help us learn what we're saying because oh, we're singing wow. it we learned it because we were <laughs> yeah, we were we would learn like the whole song in probably like three days but the other students helping us understand what we were singing about was you know like the icing on the cake they helped us we got to get there it was awesome oh i miss those songs i was at the zoo one time and one of the songs that we sang in choir it was in a song swahili and i was like bye singing at the zoo <laughs> i was with my family and they were staring at me like what are you saying and i was like this is a choir classic thank you Over half of all refugees coming to the U.S. are women and children. Like many of Conrad's students, Ruha came to Dallas as a refugee when she was 12. I was born in Shiraz, which is south of Iran. 
when I was a kid, I would experience things, you know, here and there. You know, why is my mom talking, using cold words on the phone when speaking about Baha'i meetings and stuff? Why can I not play my violin at my school in Iran? I did, you know, experience things here and there. But when we left, like, I didn't know, oh, here's the facts. Here's how many people are in prison. People's homes are being broken in, you know, and my parents... My mom, she shared her story with me when she was a kid, and their house was actually broken into, and I had no idea. And my dad also, he has an uncle whose store was burned down when he was young too. So kind of like, my parents never told me those things when I was in Iran, but when we left and you know here we felt kind of safe and they knew it was okay for them to share those things with me. Like my perspective became more broad on like what was happening. I didn't know the full picture un until I left. So for us, for my family, there wasn't like a specific event that kind of, you know, led to us leaving. Even though after we left, my mom told me that there were government officials looking for her. So I don't know what would have happened if we had stayed in Iran. Like some of the persecutions that like my family faced was like in school. For example, I, was, I couldn't get accepted to some of the best schools in Shiraz because they were um, only for, um, there were like Baha'is wouldn't get into that school. Like, even in school, my brother was told not to touch any of his classmates because um, Baha'is are najis, which this word is, Iranians use it to describe dogs. It means nasty, unclean. And so that's kind of the reason why a lot of Baha'is in Iran, or most, or all of the Baha'is in Iran, uh, can't actually work in restaurants or anything that touches food because, again, they say Baha'is are nasty. And, you know, some <laughs> some very ignorant people even think, Baha'is are not human in Iran. You know, someone got asked if Baha'is have tails. My family, again, didn't, you know, experience something specific. It was, they just didn't want that life for us. Ruha explains more about the religious climate in Iran. So it's definitely not secular, like anything in Iran. It's, you know, religion and, you know, everything in society, everything in government are pretty mixed. Um, so like I even told you, we did have uh, religion classes in in uh, school where we would read the Quran and you know understand it, memorize it. I don't know how they found out, and that's what like I've never asked my parents either. Um, maybe they know it based off of last names, sometimes they do, or um, they ask and we never lie about our religion. So if they do ask us, they would find out. But yeah, I don't think there are like a set of rules written, it's just whatever each chooses to do, or each you know, government building organization choo chooses to persecute. But Baha'is not being able to go to college is pretty written because on the application, there is a re uh, religion section, and we don't lie. And even when people do lie, I've read about a couple of cases where they have put Muslim as a religion, even though they're not, but they were expelled a few months afterwards. Mm -hmm. So like nobody can Think graduate. Compared to 1979, which is when the Iranian revolution was, it actually had gotten better, but it wasn't to a point where I could like live and work in Iran. Because again, I couldn't go to college. I wouldn't be able to work with any degree I got on the side. Because there is a school, not a like a building kind of school, but there are classes held for Baha'is in houses underground. But this is again organized by Baha'is. Nobody really gets paid. It's called BIHE, Baha'i Institute for Higher Education. And the degree that you receive from BIHE, you can't really work or do any job with it in Iran. But here, you can actually come and continue your education, your bachelor's degree in you know, from BIG, is actually worth something here, but it's worth nothing in Iran. When the government takes over a religion, I have so much respect for every religion. The Baha'i faith, 
says, you know, every religion is valid for the time. So we do, I do believe in, you know, Islam and Christianity. But when a government takes over and like controls what people can believe and, you know, tries to interpret that religion for them, like, here's what this is saying. I feel like that's where, you know, things go wrong. And it's usually, it's the government that is kind of doing all this stuff because we had a lot of neighbors in Iran who were nice to us. You know, we would hang out. They were, you know, Shia Muslim. We were Baha'is. It was no big deal. I asked Ruha if she has experienced any improvements with regard to religious sentiment here in Texas or any similarities that reminded her of Iran. Like for me, definitely coming from a community where government was persecuting us, here it does feel more free. I don't have to watch what I say as much, <laughs> which is pretty nice because in Iran, my parents had told me, you know, Ruha, you can't talk about the Baha'i faith in school or, you know, when you're just playing outside. And so for the longest time, I thought even the word God, I wasn't allowed to say. You know, I was so young. I didn't know that God was similar and like shared between, between all religions. Um, so I was always like watching what I'd say and like, I couldn't say God, which is like Khoda in Farsi. I couldn't say Khoda anywhere. Uh, but now here, definitely, I can, you know, speak my mind and I don't have to watch what I say. Like, still, like, Islamophobia, again, all the conversations I've had over Facebook and all the comments I see, it's it's not that different because, you know, that discrimination and that persecution in Iran was coming from a place of them not knowing what the Baha'i faith is, them not understanding it. And again, here, all the Islamophobia is coming from a place of people not understanding it and they're not open to you know, receive that information, open to gain new knowledge about this religion. And so it's similar in, in a lot of ways, I would say. Ruha's mother, like many others, had her talent wasted in Iran. So I don't know if she was warned, but she was doing some volunteer work, providing health information to communities that don't receive it because Baha'is are a religious minority that are being persecuted, but again, there are different ethnic groups that are also being persecuted in Iran. And the government officials did go to the houses that she would go to and like ask why is this woman coming to your house what is she doing so I, I feel like she kind of knew but like that wasn't the reason we left at all yeah because my brother was getting older and you know my parents didn't want him to all his classmates graduate and go to college and then him not being able to do anything and like would have to work in construction my dad he was a taxi driver not because he wanted to, but because that was the only option for him. Whatever he wanted to do would need uh, college you know, education, yeah. which he couldn't receive, or maybe require touching something, which he was too nudges to touch. Mm -hmm. And my mom, for a while, she was a uh, stay-at-home mom, and then she started working like at this store. But like she couldn't do much either. Like communities are Baha'i communities are so limited in a way that my aunt has a law degree from BIHE, but she still, you know, she can't really work or do anything in Iran, which is pretty mm. unfortunate because they are missing a lot of, you know, great minds, you know, could do great things. Once they decided to leave Iran to give their children a better chance for education and work, they headed to Turkey. So for us, it took 14 months, but that's only because we chose the United States. So if we were to choose Canada or Australia, it would have taken a lot longer. And we also had my mom's uncle who, who already lived here. I don't know if uh, it's still the same way. I know the process is, is a lot longer now. It takes a couple of years. But even back then, there were people who would stay in Turkey for like five to seven years for their, you know, refugee process to... Yeah. Process. Yeah, wedding process to be over with. And they just chose to stay in Turkey. 
And like some of the things that I'm just remembering about Turkey, like every week, like at least twice a week, my parents would have to go to this office and like sign their name. So we're still here. Mm -hmm. Just my parents would work in Turkey too. I didn't have school. Turkey was a, a very fun, free time for me. You know, I didn't have to wear the headscarf anymore. <laughs> I was just having fun. And then there are a lot of Iranians on the train. You know, people had their headscarves uh -huh. on until we crossed the border and then everybody just took it off. It was... You know, it's Are just you literally like five just... minutes difference. We'll come back to hear what Ruha has been doing since arriving to Dallas in a bit. Now let's hear how Joe Jenkins of Veterans for American Ideals views SIVs and refugees through the lens of his service as a U.S. Marine. You know, I'm a poor kid from Dallas, and I joined the Marine Corps when I was 19, you know, to, to make my life better because I thought I was going to become something, and I had a gleam in my eye. Iraq, I was in the uh, Al Anbar province in Iraq, and it was, what, 2007. Iraqis, you know, they're the same age as us, sometimes even older, sometimes very old, too. Um, pretty much anyone who could do anything about um, the situation in their country and maybe improving it. And we sort of get that, you know, we, we understand what that's like. We sort of did that ourselves. So there's a camaraderie there that, that, that crosses borders and ethnicities, and it's, and it's, it's very real, and it's there. I think that's it. I think just a, a, a broad sort of understanding of the human experience that people that are not like you go through, but might want to be like you and might want to be an American. That's also something pretty powerful, too. Joe had begun to develop an understanding of the human experience that resonated with his training as a Marine. That understanding was fully realized on another deployment when his ship was diverted to assist after a natural disaster. After my time in Iraq, I was on a deployment to Central America. When we were in the Caribbean area, a hurricane hit Haiti and Devis just wiped it out, devastated. And then right off the beach right there are just Haitians just lined up. They're literally standing in the rubble of their community. And they're there, they've got, you know, gratitude on their face. They aren't defeated, they're dignified. When I got there, I, I, I wasn't, you know, the, the savior of the, I wasn't the hero of the story. You know, they were. So it's, it's very strange to see, you know, how we've changed and how a, a, a different outlook has sort of pervaded the American discourse. It doesn't feel better. I wondered to Joe how we might take back that narrative we've seen recently and move toward a greater understanding. The military is a nonpartisan institution, and while we all have beliefs and we all have opinions, maybe even strongly held ideologies, it's easy, I think, when you are united in a common purpose to put that aside. And that's something that we could we could spread to the rest of America, you know, the American people, is to maybe put aside some of these ideologies or deeply held beliefs. If you would just give that up for the ability to find a common ground with someone who's not like you. Citizenship is not a spectator sport. You have to get in there and do it. So, yeah, absolutely. Being a, being a Marine or being a, a sailor, or an airman or a soldier, that's one way to do it. That's absolutely a way to do it. Maybe even a model way to do it, but it's not the only way to do it. But what about refugees? Not just SIVs who translated, worked at a U.S. consulate or base, but how do Marine Corps values translate to us accepting them or thinking differently about them? We're still talking about a population that has done everything in their power to 
keep their family safe, to be successful, and to have a shot at a life free of turmoil and war and famine. And it takes a certain courage to take your children on your back and walk 100 miles to a UN refugee camp and undergo that first screening. And to do that, and be forced to do that, however, as a refugee or an IDP, internally displaced person, you know, you can recognize that that takes a certain amount of courage and determination and spirit. And those are the exact kind of people that, you know, you can sit and, and you can you can actually, it's palpable, you can actually tell that there's a driving force, there's an aura about the situation that got them from Syria to the United States or from Sudan to the United States. And that sort of journey is everything. That it's doing everything you can to make everyone around you better. You know, your family, your kids, your community, your everything. And if that's a crazy idea, then then I'm crazy. And they're crazy. And so many people are crazy because uh, that's, that's part of the reason we do it, I think. Joe really wanted to clear up some misconceptions about refugees. I think there's a huge misconception based wholly around how politicians have talked about refugees. And we hear things like, you know, we don't know who they are. We don't know where they come from. I know who they are. And we do know where they come from. Not only are they heavily vetted, who we are taking after our complex system of vetting, uh, checks and rechecks, are the very ones that are attacked by our enemies, that have survived the brutal attacks and the constant oppression of our enemies, like ISIS. And they are the ones that gather their belongings, whatever they can carry, and they can make it to the refugee camp. Those are the people that we're getting. Somehow the narrative has been twisted into a system in which anyone could come or anyone does come, and it's simply not true. These are the people that mirror the drive and determination of the ancestors that we all share, of coming to a place that accepts you because you buy into this idea and you want to be free. If you go through that and you qualify for that, welcome. Today, Ruha and her family are examples of what Joe talked about. Her parents struggled to be able to get them to a place where they would not be persecuted for a lifetime due to their religion. And because of their sacrifices and support, Ruha has not just survived, she has thrived, growing into a strong leader in the Dallas community despite her youth. I asked her what inspired her to act and what her activism led to. I would definitely say first off my parents because they have shown me a lot of different skills as far as never give up or because you know they were refugees they left everything behind and you know now we're here and we have a house it's all because of their hard work so I definitely learned a lot from my parents but also this um, college readiness program called Eagle Scholars they do all of their work in Wickery Meadows and with students who go to TASB and then later on go to Conrad And so I learned a lot of my interests, like public speaking and photography there. And also IRC, when I interned for them last summer, I learned learned a lot of the sky's the limit, like I could do a lot more. I feel like it was maybe two and a half years ago, like when we first heard about the Education is Not a Crime campaign. And before that, I knew I was a refugee and like why we had to leave. But after I got familiar with the campaign, I was like, there are like people doing work to make a difference and make sure that, you know, the things that happen to my family don't happen again. 
And so when I got familiar with the campaign, I drew a, a small painting or a drawing because I knew part of the campaign was public art and they were trying to get the message across, raise awareness through art. And then I reached out to Translation, which was a nonprofit, and person at Translation said we could make this a mural. And after we made the mural, I was like, wow, this like started as a really small thing, just me, you know, in my head thinking, oh, I want to be a part of this. And now, you know, it's a really big mural. And it was later on featured in D Magazine. And I got interviewed with D Magazine too. And also it was showcased at El Centro. So it kind of led to me networking with more people, getting more opportunities, and then seeing what's possible. I kind of, after that project, I became more comfortable talking to people and also... I realized I kind of found my purpose. Like, what what am I supposed to do here as a refugee who you know barely speaks any English? It kind of gave me some hope, and then I I was able to do more research about what was happening in Iran, and I kind of found my story. And I and I was like, okay, now I want to share that story. And like, whenever I was talking about the campaign, I would add some of my personal stories, and this kind of led to me being more comfortable public speaking, sharing my stories, talking to people. Ruha was invited to speak at her school by the World Affairs Council. She shared her story as a freshman at Conrad High School on stage with two other speakers. Both were senior boys. I was reading about all of this and I saw, you know, I would go to school and nobody cared. Like nobody was talking about what was happening in Syria. Nobody was talking about what was happening in Afghanistan. And I was like, it kind of made me mad. And I also felt like I, I needed to be the one doing the work, you know, doing all the work that other people aren't doing. And so it got to a point where, you know, I was just either like thinking about that or talking about it. But now I'm kind of stepping back and realizing, you know, and my teachers talk to me. One of my teachers, she, she always tells me like, Ruha, it's okay to, you know, to do all the things you're doing, but you also you know, need to focus on yourself and make sure you're okay too. I had a lot of arguments on social media, you know, mean comments and just, yeah, ignoring comments under, you know, pictures and videos. And a lot of them were comments that were anti-Muslim. And I would say I lived in Iran for 11 years of my life and I went to school, I read the Quran and, you know, I've had many friends and I still have many friends who are Muslim. And I still feel like I don't know anything about Islam. I would tell him, you know, how are you formulating this opinion? You know, is it off of Google? Have you read Quran? Have you? So it's very, it's very important to travel. For all of her passion and activism, I had to ask Ruha a more basic question. What did she know about the U.S. before she came? So in Iran, they like to like paint this picture of, oh, like in school and stuff. Oh, the U.S. is like this horrible place. Um, they like to paint this picture, but I also had uh, two uncles who lived in the U.S. So I would talk to them. We would just talk, and I would be like, oh, this looks pretty pretty nice. But when I first officially learned about the U.S. was in Turkey, because we had a cultural orientation. It's where we learned, you know, to call 911 when we had emergencies. But I had, like, <laughs> I used to watch films from the United States, so I kind of had this idea of, oh, it's going to be like, Los Angeles, we're gonna, you know, walk in and see the Hollywood sign. Like, high school is gonna be like high school musical. You know, for refugees, it disappoints us a lot because we go to school and we're like, no, we're not singing, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I had this idea and we came here. When we landed in, in New York, it was at night. So I kind of saw all the lights, the buildings. I was like, oh, this is great. And then we landed in Dallas and it was during the day and Dallas was pretty like, there's nothing impressive about it no. pretty much. So I was like, are we sure we landed in the right place? It was very different. I thought we were going to have a dog, but we never got a dog. We have a cat, which is not the same, but yeah, <laughs> I still love her. 
Yeah. Anybody who wants to give away their dollar, contact me. So how did the adjustment go once she settled into Texas and realized life was a very non-high school musical experience? Well, aside from the Conrad Choir, of course. Adjusting was pretty easy. I didn't like get dropped into the American-American culture or like society. We lived in Wickery Meadows, so a lot of the people were refugees and even in school, you know, mostly refugees. Um, so like I didn't have a lot of adjusting to do, but obviously like little things like the food was a little different. The toilets obviously are totally different. <laughs> My mom, she, she did take like English classes in Iran. So now she is in Richland College just computer classes so she can have a better job. For them, it's it's never been easy. You know, it's, it's always been me having fun or my siblings having fun, them working. Mm-hmm. And even now, we, you know, you would think that, oh, you've lived here five years, you know, things are pretty easy. Mm-hmm. They're not, because my, my dad still works, you know, 70 hours a week. I don't, I pretty much never see him. Mm-hmm. My mom, she's working full time. She goes to college. My brother used to work and go to high school. I work and go to high school. So it's... <laughs> It's not easy in a sense that, oh, we're now living the American dream. I don't know what the American dream is. If it's like you work 40 hours, then we're not living it because my dad is working more. So Ruha's parents' end goal is achieved. They came here for the kids' education and happiness. They are happy the kids are happy. Even though they are working so hard, they have no time for fun or relaxing. I went to New York City. I spoke at this event. Like, I've gone to California twice with my friends just on my own. Like, I feel bad because I want them to be there and I want them to see, you know, this this side of the U.S., not just me go to work, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wake up at 4, go to work, come back home at 4, sleep for one hour, go to Walmart at 5. It's, it's very draining for them. And, like, my dad does a very good job at, like, oh, I'm not tired at all. Like, I'm, I'm chilling. I'm doing great. He's not doing it. He's very tired. Like, he can fall asleep. In one minute, like anywhere, <laughs> any day of the week. Aww. But yeah, he does a very good job of, I'm, I'm just here for you guys. Like, if you're doing great, I'm not tired at all. I love working. He says that a lot, too. I love working. I'm like... I heard Ruha present her findings from a survey to city leaders in Dallas. I asked her to share her findings from that survey with you, our listeners. My main task was to uh, create a survey for refugee students and see what they needed and how they could best be supported. And then the rest of my internship was getting the survey out to refugee students and a lot of that was, you know, going to their home and translating for them, making sure they understand. Um, and then at the end, I got to present the information once here in the IRC and then another time with all the refugee resettlement agencies in Dallas. They were all there. <laughs> that a lot of people want to travel or a lot of people want to work, refugees. Uh, and also all refugee students want to go to college but a lot of them don't necessarily know how to these students because a lot of them said that they don't feel comfortable speaking to the counselors. And I feel like that's important because, you know, if you're being bullied, you know, it's it's from like emotional and psychological help to like physical schedule change and, you know, stuff like that. So I feel like there needs to be more effort put into that department. Maybe separate people do the scheduling, different people come in for emotional, mental support. You know, are you okay in school? There needs, to be more resource. <laughs> there needs to be more resource put That's into... Meant, yeah. yeah, put into... Even though she and her immediate family are safe now, she worries for the extended family they left behind in Iran. My dad has family members who are in prison right now. Mm-hmm. He has a cousin and, you know, the cousin's husband. They're both yeah. in prison. She's serving five years, I think, and her husband's serving four. And when they went to prison, they um, already had a 
five-year-old son, which they weren't, they weren't gonna see for the, you know, next half a decade. Uh, their son is staying with a totally different family, like not a relative. And that was kind of the Baha'i community's decision. They said it's better. But like they missed a lot of things, like his first day of school. My dad's cousin, she actually studied in India mm-hmm. and you know, she has a degree, she has an actual degree. So she could she could have done a lot of things. She could have, you know, with this computer science degree, she could have gone yeah. to, you know, many different countries. But she chose to come back and she chose to educate Iranian citizens. And you know, they're now serving prison time, which is pretty unfortunate, but hopefully yeah. they'll be out soon. I mean there a lot of Baha'is seven Baha'is were in prison 10 years ago and they were given a 20 uh, year sentence mm-hmm. but now that sentence was cut in half later on you know some people fought in court i believe three of them have been released in the last two three months mm-hmm. but it's very very emotional to just see the pictures and like one person he's like he was very old when he was put in prison now he's even older but just seeing you know he hasn't seen his family in 10 years he was in solitary confinement for a couple of years what that does to a person's uh, mental health and it's very crazy what Ruha may just be a junior, but she already has big dreams for after high school. And she can't wait to get started. I'm taking my SAT in like a few days. I'm just so tired. For me, it's pretty much school. And then I do have a job, but it's not that many hours. Um, But like the things that I'm interested in, a lot of the people my age aren't interested in. Where my opinions are formed. And my mom says it's because I'm like a little older for my grade. But I don't know. It's... Why are you so, you know, caught up in, like, relationships or, like, friendships? Oh, she said this about me. Like, why are there fights in school? Why are there food like fights petty. in school? Yeah, I'm, like, pretty much over it. And I'm just like, just let me go to school and just leave. Do <laughs> you have a school in mind, by the way? Uh, UC Berkeley. Oh, wow. That's yeah. fantastic. Joe and Ruha could not be more different from one another. Ruha is a Baha'i peacemaker and pacifist. Joe is a Marine who will serve his country and honor his lifetime oath one way or another every day for the rest of his life. But what makes them alike is that they are both doing their part to rise above differences and find a way to have conversations that not only seek out but celebrate and value our shared humanity. Both are brave, both are free, and both continue to make the world a more free and brave place for us all. Join us on the next episode in April when we meet the leaders of Jewish, Muslim, and Christian faith communities in Dallas and hear how they are working together to build safer communities by creating understanding grounded in the basic core human rights of all three of these religions. This podcast is brought to you by Southern Methodist University's Embry Human Rights Program. I'm your host, Tiffany Jockey. This podcast would not be possible without the tireless efforts of Allison Flake, audio production, and Michelle Lara, production assistant. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash in their own voices. <laughs> <laughs>